they gained more than 8 million subscribers in 2022, which is a year wherein everybody had a really rough year in the streaming business. Uh -huh. It's actually really impressive. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Today, Julia Alexander is here to talk about the ups and downs of Peacock, NBC Universal's streaming platform. The company says Peacock was the right bet, and it's gaining subscribers thanks to their sports offerings. But they're also coming up short in other ways. Julia explains. And later, Julia Yaffe joins Ben Landy to discuss Joe Biden's shifting red line in Ukraine and why some in Washington fear that Russia may retaliate with an asymmetrical counterattack. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to February. Get ready for a big month, Valentine's Day. It's a huge, important holiday. Right, Julie Alexander? It's like your it's your favorite holiday, Valentine's Day. I would say it is my favorite corporate-made holiday of all the corporate-made <laughs> holidays. <laughs> uh, I was in Ralph's in Venice the other day in like mid-January or something, and they already had all the Valentine's stuff up for sale. And he looks at me and goes, they're just trying to take everyone's money, man. They're just trying to take everyone's money. And I was like, yeah, you make a good point. <laughs> um, speaking of taking money, Peacock had their earnings call last week and announced that they've gained 5 million additional paid subscribers. They have more than 20 million total subscribers. They bragged about some revenue gains, but they also said they lost almost a billion dollars. Every time we talk about Peacock, it feels like there's some good news and some bad news. Like they've got some quality shows, they've got sports, but they're also killing shows left and right and like sell, giving their IP to other platforms, et cetera. What's the deal with Peacock right now? I mean, are we supposed to, uh, like Jeff Shell, the CEO of NBC Universal said, this was this is a good business model and we're, we're comfortable with our bet and our investment in Peacock. Are you, Julia? It's so funny because everything about Peacock screams double-edged sword. Everything about them is like, we make this amazing one step forward and then it feels like one step backward. And so when we look at the fact that they gained more than 8 million subscribers in 2022, which is a year wherein everybody had a really rough year in the streaming business, uh -huh. it's actually really impressive. And I think it speaks to the fact that when Peacock first launched, it felt a little directionless. And now when we talk about Peacock, it feels like it understands who its audience is, a little bit of an older crowd. It understands what its purpose is, and it's really there to kind of be a cheaper alternative for cable. So when people are getting out of the pay TV system, many of whom are Comcast customers, they're trying to find a streaming service that has their Dick Wolf shows and their Sunday Night Football and their Bravo, and Peacock is the best offering for it. The thing about Peacock that makes this a double-edged sword 
is that unlike Netflix, for example, which raises money for its shows via debt and then has now entered a point where they have very little debt to pay off. They have no debt maturities in 2023. They have one payment of $400 million in 2024 to make, but they're projecting $3 billion in free cash flow. When we look at Peacock, the argument that Bulls will put out is that Peacock can have this close to a billion dollars projecting much, much more loss in 2023, and they're calling it kind of a peak loss. The reason that Bulls say this can work for them is because they can pull from other sides of Comcast business. But the issue is the more that Peacock leans into things like sports and really makes that central part of the thesis to why people should subscribe, the more it neglects the linear pay TV system, which is where all that profit margin was coming from. It's where you can lean on it. And not only that, when Comcast reports these earnings, broadband has basically flattened out, right? Pay TV is down. The parks are not necessarily the huge business that it was. And although they have a stronger cash flow than Disney, for example, it is this really interesting race within Comcast to kind of make sure the risk pays off. The idea is we're going to bet that all these customers are going to come over to Peacock and that we'll eventually have the profit margin to make this a really profitable business for us as we catch those pay TV subscribers who are leaving. But we don't actually know if that's going to happen. And the more that they put a dent into sports and the more that they neglect that business, it becomes much harder to say, will you have the profit necessary, the revenue necessary to continue investing in Peacock? What do you mean neglecting the sports business? So if we think about the way that we drive attention and viewership, it is uh -huh. through exclusivity on channels, right? ESPN puts Monday Night Football on ESPN because it drives a lot of eyeballs, it drives a lot of ad revenue, and they can charge higher affiliate fees, which makes that a really stable business. Or back in the day, it was a really stable business for Disney. When we look at what NBC is doing, you can watch football on NBC. We can also watch football on Peacock. You can watch the World Cup on Telemundo, you can also watch it on Peacock. You can watch the Olympics on Peacock, a, a decent portion of it, right, not right, just right. on USA or wherever they're hosting it. And so the idea is they're telling all these customers, hey, come to Peacock because you can watch this, which is really great for subscriber growth. And if this was the Wall Street era of 2018, that would be everything. The fact that they added more than like 5 million subscribers in Q4 alone would be a huge success story for them. But the issue is that needs to translate into revenue. Peacock is super cheap sports are getting more expensive and to continue being the house that houses all of this all these sports that all these sports fans turn to you know they're watching their football they're watching whatever else they want to watch premier league they're watching uh -huh. wwe that comes at a pretty high cost and it's only getting more costly think about it this way f1 five or six years ago cost 15 million dollars for three years the, the rights to those the rights went last year for 75 million dollars in part thanks to a show on, on Netflix that really inspired right. additional viewership in, in F1, but also in part because there's so much demand for sports. You have huge tech giants like Apple, Amazon, and Google willing to pay whatever they're gonna pay in order to get into the game, that all of the incumbents now have to increase what they're spending on sports. And you talk to different executives and they're like, well, we're gonna spend on sports what we have to spend on sports. The issue was that within the pay TV bundle, it was almost like a socialist, network, right? It was almost like the worst performing channels managed to do okay because the top performing channels exist in the same bundle. And so they all kind of had this way of making profit despite the high cost of sports. When you go direct to consumer and you are now the content producer, you're the distributor, you're taking on all of this at such a low charge to consumers that eventually you have to raise those prices in order to continue paying and you have to find other ways to increase profits. And if you get to the point where things are becoming more expensive and there's better general entertainment, you know, we're talking about Peacock, we haven't even talked about shows, and there's right. better general entertainment on other platforms, and you're not locked into a, a contract, 
those customers are going to leave. And then all of a sudden you've got a major churn issue, which is going to be the biggest problem in 2023 for all these streaming services. Your costs are up. And the one area that you were looking at, which is your sense of stable profit margins, which is the linear and the pay TV base and broadband is now declining. And you kind of are helping, helping that decline by pushing people over to Peacock. Now the argument bulls will make is that they were going to leave anyways. The, the, the pay, mm-hmm. pay TV is always going to decline. And that is true. But the idea that Comcast is kind of pushing it as opposed to kind of waiting it out. And they, you know, they have the free cash flow. They can arguably say, well, we're going to wait. We're going to kind of subsidize the cost of this until it's the right moment to increase stuff and we can really see our, our profit grow. The issue is that they have more to lose than a company like Netflix does, right? They have more to lose arguably than a company like Disney does. And so it's really interesting to see them play this game of chicken almost, you know, kind of driving towards the edge of the cliff to see if the profits from streaming eventually hit a point where it doesn't matter that pay TV is declining because everything is okay. What do you attribute the 5 million subscriber number to in Q4? And as a corollary question in talking about shows, what at this point are their premier pieces of content? Like what's bringing eyeballs? Is it like back seasons of Yellowstone? Like is there one show that like really has been like a premier show for them? I would say it's uh, the biggest driver in Q4 was the World Cup. It's the return of football. It is some Premier League. It's it's, it's always sports oriented. The largest driver from the sports. The second largest driver is the Universal Films. They move to Peacock after 45 days. So you've got great films like Nope. You've got the Minions movies, which is a really big get for them. I would say that's probably the best offering that Peacock has from the general entertainment side. It's a streamer I pay for. Like I like Peacock and you have the great movies over there and that's why I signed up for it. And then on the television front, what's really interesting about Peacock is that when they first started, they had this strategy of we're gonna try to be HBO. And I remember thinking, you don't have to be HBO. HBO exists. And then Apple wants to be HBO and they have the money to do it. And Netflix wants to be HBO and they have the money to do it. Showtime is still trying to be HBO, right? Like all these things are still trying to do that. What your audience is, is the Bravo audience. It's 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 the channel's audience. It's these people who want to watch Hallmark films. And so I think you've seen the Peacock team really realize this and kind of lean into that. So they make the the partnerships with Hallmark. They really bring back the next day viewing from channels like Bravo. They have all the Dick Wolf stuff, right? All of that is working for them. And then they're trying to find their hits. They've got what seems to be a hit in Ryan Johnson's Poker Face. They are working with the right talent. They're making the right decisions and what titles to cancel and what titles to move off and how to use that revenue to then invest in new shows and new potential areas. But that Peacock is so tied to sports. And if this was a channel, if this was, you know, ESPN five, mm-hmm. you'd be like, sure, <laughs> it's in the bundle. It's it's a bet, but you know, there's probably an audience who's really interested in niche sports and then we can dole off some of the bigger sports. But there is no safety blanket in streaming right now. And sports are only getting more expensive. And so to be in that game, you really have to be in it for the long call. And I think with Comcast, although they have pretty good cash flow and although they could subsidize it, I don't know if the teams actually want to be in it for the long haul, if they're still the sixth place streamer three years from now. And then if you've trained all of your audience to go to the streaming platform that may not exist in three years, and you've effectively neglected the TV system, the linear system, now you're in this place where, well, what do you do? I, I think the answer for Comcast is probably a free ad-supported television, which we call fast, a fast platform. They have some technology for it. They have some platforms for it. It seems like a great bet to kind of put up their old content that's not really 
generating subscriptions, but is really good in in generating engagement. So the ad revenue is really strong, right? Which is in a whole other conversation Peter and I could have at a different time about (laughs) Peacock and Comcast. But it's not that Peacock is set to fail. I think they've had a really great year and I think they're in a good position. I just think we need to have a real honest conversation about the cost of making sports the central thesis to your platform because that comes with a lot of costs down the road. Well, I do think, Julia, you were right that there's been a shift in the tone about Peacock from even a year ago, the way you're talking about it. Yes, there are ups and downs to it, but it feels like there's some positive momentum uh, for them. And that feels like a shift from some of the past conversations we've had. Also, I should point out, I looked up just now which sports are available on Peacock. You mentioned a lot of them. Rugby is available on Peacock. So, you know. Hopefully uh, Netflix doesn't do a show about rugby and then drive up the cost of rugby rights. Uh, that would be tough, tough break for Peacock. Well, now you got to get credit if they do it. You got to get at least 1% <laughs> of that. <laughs> Netflix rugby show. Holy shit. A lot of, lot of beer drinking, I assume. Julia, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. When we come back, Julia Yaffe talks to Ben Landy about a new danger that might be emerging in Ukraine. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what The Playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Are. Pancakes, I love pancakes, more than waffles, more than French toast. A couple of my favorites so far, the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites. I love egg bites. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals, factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. So sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Welcome back to the powers that be. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Yaffe. Hey, Julia. Hi, Ben. Julia, we've talked a lot about how the war in Ukraine has entered this sort of slow, punishing phase of conflict where neither side is gaining that much ground per se, but instead you're seeing these sort of prolonged, high-casualty artillery fights and this mostly static front where the fighting's been concentrated in a couple key strategic cities. But I wanted to ask you about another potentially underappreciated risk of this war that you've been reporting on, which is 
how Russia could escalate by identifying soft targets outside of Ukraine. Is there a fear that Putin will seek to raise the temperature and the consequences for Western nations that have been aiding Ukraine? Yeah, so... This is one of the things I've been hearing in Washington, and it kind of comes out of last week's piece where we talked about the price cap working and the fact that Putin thought he had this stranglehold in terms of energy over Europe, and it turned out that Europe didn't need him nearly as much as he would have liked, and he's lost some levers of control over Europe. So there's a worry in Washington that the longer Putin's aims and goals are frustrated in Ukraine, the longer he is unable to move more than, you know, 10 kilometers here and 20 kilometers there. You know, you said they're strategic cities, but their their strategery has been kind of invented because they're being fought over. Like Bakhmut is not all that important strategically. And the fear is that because of Putin's growing frustration, that he'd be too scared to use nuclear weapons. According to my sources, he has been told by the Chinese and Indian governments that if you do this, buddy, you are on your own and we are completely washing our hands of you. And China and India have been two very important pillars of support, not militarily, but economically for Russia as it has become completely isolated from the West economically and politically. And so what would Putin do to retaliate against the West in his growing anger and frustration that he is not getting where he wants to go in Ukraine. And one of the hypotheses I've heard uh, among people who know in Washington is that there's a worry that he would step up this asymmetrical warfare and just unleash a crazy amount of chaos in Europe and America. Assassinations, cyber attacks, political meddling, you name it. Yeah, I've been wondering about this myself. I mean, Obviously, the the tactical nuclear weapon fear has not borne out. Yet. We don't know, but so far. That's right. They they, they have not used a tactical nuclear weapon yet. And and that looks like it's encouraged the West a little bit to sort of like push the boundaries. I mean, we saw earlier this week Biden saying that, okay, we're not going to send F-16s to Ukraine, but they did just agree to send tanks and Germany has agreed to provide them as well. I mean, that is a small escalation. And it feels like the Western governments, NATO, and, and then sorry to inter- and sorry to interrupt you. And then Emmanuel Macron just said a couple of days ago. He said, "Well, we don't have a prohibition against sending fighter jets to Ukraine. Like, yes, there are things that we would need to consider, but he basically said we're not saying no, which is a big step forward again." Right. So you have all these NATO countries that are essentially kind of testing to see where Putin's red line right. actually is before he lashes back out. Totally. And presumably, Russia doesn't want to enrage NATO to the point where they join in this war either. It seems like neither side really wants this. So you're saying Russia is now looking at potentially other ways that it can raise the costs for the West with some level of plausible deniability. That is the fear in Washington, that, that this might be the thing they revert to, the kind of active measures that we saw in the few years leading up to Ukraine. So the way, you know, the polonium poisonings, the Novichok poisonings, the cyber attacks, the 2016 election meddling, and that is concerning. But luckily, not everybody thinks that that is even possible for Russia to do anymore. 
is the thinking that Russia just does not have the capacity anymore, that they've thrown so much of the war machine into Ukraine that they don't have the same level of capabilities inside these other countries to launch these kind of asymmetrical attacks? Well, it's a slightly different than that. It's that with the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, one of the measures that NATO countries took is PNGing or making people persona non grata, so kicking them out, some 400 Russian quote-unquote diplomats from America, from other NATO countries. And these diplomats were usually not actual diplomats, but members of the Russian intelligence services. So in their initial response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, NATO countries have significantly degraded Russia's manpower in this sphere and their just capabilities in place to carry out these kinds of attacks. And yes, they are now so focused on Ukraine. This is, you know, Putin's precious. And, you know, giving the green light to do some kind of very risky operations for Putin that maybe don't have that much upside, right? But again, we're talking in like normal people logic and not Putin logic. Because normal people logic would say like, okay, you unleash this storm of let's say, assassinations and election meddling and supporting separatist parties in, I don't know, Spain and then in the Balkans, or, you know, you meddle in American elections again. And at this point, everybody's going to know it's you. There's no more plausible deniability, right? And all it's going to do is unify Western countries, regalvanize them where maybe support for uh, Ukraine had been waning or becoming more tepid, questioning why was this our fight to begin with? If Putin were to say, God forbid, like assassinating European or Western politicians all over the place in America and the US, what better way to bring everybody on board again in a really kind of active and vehement way? How is the Biden White House digesting this intelligence? Because obviously they, they are still pushing ahead in not an aggressive way, but in a bold way, in that they're deciding to escalate slightly. They're going to provide tanks. They've been providing some training to Ukrainian troops. Again, we're not going to send the F-16s, but they are going to send the M1 Just Abrams. yet. I mean, we might, though. That's the thing. I think that's definitely next. And I would not be surprised if a few months from now, or even a couple months from now, you and I are sitting here talking about how this shipment of F-16s is going out to Ukraine. Is there tension with the Pentagon? I know you've reported before that there have been real differences of opinion between the Biden White House and the State Department and the Defense Department over how to manage these tensions and where the tripwires might actually be as you start to think about how do you actually bring this war to a conclusion? Totally. I mean, I think that uh, the misconception that I think a lot of people in America have, especially maybe on the left side of the political spectrum, is that the Pentagon is just constantly saber rattling and wants to invade everywhere. In fact, they are quite conservative and would rather not be fighting wars if, if you know, they had their druthers. What they love to do is make contingency plans and store up weapons and order new weapon systems. But, you know, it's their people taking the brunt of it, and they don't like going to war, and they've been really chastened by Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, for example, uh, Chairman Mike Milley, who's, I guess, the, you know, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is basically the head of the American military, right? Um, I think he felt that 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, everything fell on the military and that, you know, where he felt like where was the State Department and where were the diplomatic efforts. And so there's a lot of kind of resistance in the in the Pentagon to be to getting stuck in that role again. And from what I understand, there are also political appointees from the Biden administration who are old time Russia hands who know this issue through and through, who are fighting those bureaucratic fights to push to get the Pentagon, the powers that be, haha, in the Pentagon on board to make sure Ukraine gets what it needs. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it, of course, it evidences the fact that these inside conversations that are happening in Washington really are oftentimes a lot more nuanced than you'd expect, or at least tend to move in, in surprising directions. Julia, thanks as always for stopping by. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.